Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Ron. And this is our review of The Punisher, starring Dolph Lundgren, yes, that one, Louis Gossett Jr., Jerome Crabb, and Kim Miori. Released in 1989 in West Germany, and eventually in 1991 in the U.S. on a $9 million budget, New World Pictures brought us this early foray into the Marvel Cinematic Universe here, Ron. So, you know, Brian and I came back on Filmstrip. We did The Crow, which is not a Marvel comic, or, but, you know, it was a comic. Then we did Dark Man, which was Sam Raimi's idea of what a comic book character could be because he couldn't buy Batman or The Shadow. <laughs> and then, you know, I came, you know, I was like, all right, man, let's, let's do a comeback episode. What's something from, like, early comic book adventures you want to do that sort of anti-hero and you're like oh man 1989's the punisher and immediately i was flooded back to memories of having watched this so i want to know like where you got introduced to this version of the punisher oh this was a rental from roadrunner video don't know if you remember roadrunner video that was that was not where i was from no we didn't have those um they it was uh yeah it was definitely one that was rented in 1991 and possibly uh recorded off of a VHS onto a Betamax and then back onto a VHS <laughs> uh back in the day when you know you could do that thing that was that was our version of downloading off the internet yeah double duping off of VHS tapes i had friends that worked in audio video so they helped me uh, do that back in the day uh, nice. so so yeah one of which videoed my wedding on so anyway, uh, but yeah, okay. So I, I didn't know about this until years later. Like I, I think I found out about it when the Thomas Jane one was coming out in theaters, and I did not see that in theaters. I, I rented it, and uh, I was talking about it, and somebody was like, "Oh man, have you seen the Dolph Lundgren one?" I was like, "Dolph Lundgren was the Punisher," and so that was all I knew. I didn't know Dolph Lundgren did anything um, outside of Rocky Four. Um, Except when he was in Expendables movies. Like, I never knew he did much else. I mean, he was like a chemical engineer or something, but I, I didn't know he had a life outside of playing Drago. <laughs> well, clearly he does. Um, uh, and this is a, yeah, this is a pretty good example of his, uh, oeuvre. His acting range. Well, you know, I take that back. Wasn't he in a movie called I Come in Peace? Or something like that, where like he was an alien killer or something along those lines. I seem to remember that one. That that sounds right. Yeah. So either way, like I didn't know this was a thing until later in life. Again, around the Thomas Jane time. So I I can't remember when I first saw this, but I know for this time I watched it on YouTube because it's for free on there, and I probably watched it on the internet the first time I saw it. But it was like later in life, so this one was kind of new for me to come to. I think I had seen like memes about it. And I'd heard people talk about it, but I had never seen this one. So it's fun that you, you've you had you know, almost 30 years with this movie now. Yes, 30 years of uh, pretty fond of memories. I remember it being great as a kid. Yeah, I think it is definitely aimed for that, even though it is very much R-rated. <laughs> We're going to talk about that. Well, um, it's okay because, you know, it's it's America. Yeah. Kids, can, kids can see as many people getting shot as they want, but, you know. As long as there's no female nipples. Right, right. You cannot have nudity or titillation of any kind lest we, we now have to you know shut that down. But blowing stuff up all day, you know, so apparently we can let that one go. Now, New World Pictures, I threw that out there early on. For the uninitiated, do tell us uh, who New World is. Oh, well, New World actually got its auspicious beginning as a Roger Corman, as Roger Corman studio. Right. Uh, he owned it for most of its existence up until the mid eighties, in which case it was sold and then it was sold again. And at this point, this is the second to last 
uh, New World Picture movie to come out. Just was looking at it uh, on Wikipedia the other day, and I forget what it was, so that should tell you how good it was. Yeah, it wasn't anything good or interesting. It just had a very generic title. And uh, it came out about two years after this, which suggests that they were filming this in that gap in, between 1989 and 1991 and didn't have the money to release it until it was too late. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, and that's what I wanted to ask was, do you know the story on why this got released in Germany and not the U.S.? Was it a distribution issue? I assume it was a combination of a distribution issue and money problems because the the studio was on its last legs at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, it actually didn't go bankrupt. It got bought by uh, somebody who also then it, – it, at some point, this studio was actually merged with Marvel Entertainment. Oh, wow. And then they bought – I want to say it was Toy Biz or – Hasbro or something bought them and that's how uh, Ari Avad became the guy in charge of Marvel. Oh man. So see everything that you all love about Endgame is thanks to this in some small way, right? Like that's what we're saying basically. So uh, at, at this point, I, man, I got to tell you the Punisher as a property, just before we get into this movie, like there's a lot of iterations. I mentioned the Thomas Jane one that I had seen that one. I never saw the, I guess the Ray Winstone one. I've heard a lot about it. It just didn't sound it's, like my kind. It's of great. Okay, well that that's a ring endorsement. That I've watched a little bit of the television show that Netflix produced. Um, just it, not my thing. Like it wasn't bad. I thought it was actually done pretty good. It just wasn't what I was going for. So like I have no relationship to the Punisher like at all. Um, so it's it's new to me to to even care about this property. Um, so you you have you seen uh, the other iterations of this though? Yes, I've watched uh, one episode of the Netflix show. I watched uh, Daredevil up until the Punisher shows up. Then I I, I didn't lose interest. I ran out of time, uh, free time to watch it because a new season of BoJack Horseman dropped, and then I got distracted. Um, <laughs> but I remember the Punisher from comic books. Uh, I remember this movie, of course. I was a huge, huge fan of this movie because of all the the, the gun violence. Um, I've seen the Thomas Jane Punisher. I've seen the Ray Winstone Punisher, and I wholeheartedly recommend it, uh, especially the How Did This Get Made with uh, the director of Punisher Warzone, Lexi Alexander. Oh, wow. I didn't she know that is, they did that. That's cool. She is very uh, forthcoming about the difficulty she had with the studio her intentions on making an extremely hard R Punisher and, and uh, her lack of understanding of the comic books uh, mixed with her desire to do something that looked crazy. So it's I, I've said this before. My friend Thomas, who if you go back and listen to our Aliens versus Predator Requiem <laughs> review from way back when, I dropped Tim's name on this. He was the only person besides you that I've ever heard like recommend Warzone, and he was the guy that recommended AVPR because he said, "No, man, they go for it in this one." And so I, I remember him talking up, and I didn't go with him, but he was talking up going to see Warzone with like another mutual friend, and they were just all jazzed about it because it was going to be hardcore, and apparently it is. And so for what you say, that's the thing about this movie that I don't, I don't know why I maybe didn't pay attention to it or didn't care about it, and maybe why I didn't get into the Punisher, like shoot 'em up '80s movies and early '90s movies. That was my jam, man. Like next to horror movies, that's what I watched. Watched. So it's it's funny that like I don't know this one missed on me uh, somehow uh, and maybe I did see this and I've just forgotten it and that's the reason why uh, we can get into that as we go through this but I'm I'm a little surprised that this wasn't more into my wheelhouse because of all the Chuck Norris stuff I was watching and some of the other stuff we've talked about uh, yeah this is a good this would definitely be a good double bill with uh, Invasion USA in terms of crazy murder sprees <laughs> yeah I mean yeah just an incredible violence for almost no reason. But we'll get into that. But I think before we go any further, I don't know. I mean, we are talking about a movie that is officially 30 years old. So congratulations that it exists still. I think it's built a cult following. But tell people, Ron, what the plot of this version of The Punisher is. Love to. It's the same plot as all the other ones, but uh, (laughs) this one has Dolph Lundgren. Frank Castle is a man on a mission. For the last five years, he's killed over 120 mobsters, thugs, and any other people he deems guilty. See, 
Frank was a detective, and along with his partner Jake, they were investigating organized crime when a car bomb meant for Frank killed his wife and two children. Jake's been looking for him for five years, but hasn't found the man they called the Punisher yet. When the mob boss convicted of the murders of Frank's family is released on a technicality, Frank surfaces to kill him and his goons. This causes the desperate and depleted ranks of organized crime to band together, but they are now fighting a threat by the Japanese monsters known as the Yakuza, led by Lady Tanaka, who is looking to move in and take over the weakened gang's territory. The Yakuza steal the children of the remaining gangsters, and the Punisher springs into action to rescue the kids. However, the son of the top boss, Johnny Franco, is still in captivity, and Frank is finally jailed for his vigilante crimes. Franco and his goons break Frank out and hold Jake hostage to force the Punisher to go on a final mission to rescue the kid. Along with Franco, the Punisher takes out the Yakuza, including Lady Tanaka. Franco attempts to turn on the Punisher, but in the struggle for the gun, the mob boss is shot, and the Punisher warns the young son not to grow up to be like his father, or else he'll be waiting for him. And then there's just nudity in the sewer for reasons that we're going to have to discuss. But <laughs> yeah, lots of lots of greased up 1989 doll ass. Well, so. I think like if, if you were a muscle guy from the 80s and early 90s, like that was just and you're in a rated R movie, we were going to get a backside shot. Like it was, it was very Red Dragonish. I mean, it was all this stuff like was going to happen. <laughs> like, um, thank goodness they didn't do that in Manhunter, uh, but uh, they might as well have. <laughs> okay, so lots to unpack there, um, I think. And first off is, when I think of Dolph Lundgren, um, I, I mean, I think Drago. I think this tall, when he's like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, in real life. So in Hollywood standards, he's like 12 feet tall, um, which is what we talked about with Liam Neeson in Dark, Dark Man. He's legitimately tall, so it looks weird to see him up against actors. You have this tall guy, and I think of this that spiked bleach blonde hair, right? And he comes out in this movie, man, with how would you describe the getup that they've got this dude in? Uh, I described it as uh, the uh, 68 comeback special Elvis. <laughs> uh, but instead of being on, you know, uh, all the drugs that was prescribed to him by Colonel Robert Parker, uh, he replaced all those like uppers and downers with uh, just straight up steroids. <laughs> yeah, not, he, that I, it, not that I think Dolph actually did steroids, but I mean, <laughs> he is head to toe black leather uh, and looks like he's got this weird stubble beard that's it's painted it's, on like shoe polish style like it's yeah, very it looks like weird. uh like a lighter version of the hulk hogan beard he had yeah in, uh, yes yes it's the nwo hogan beard with like jet black elvis impersonator hair and the voice he's doing is it's a Stallone, right? Like, we can just go ahead and say it. It is very sly. Like, he's opening the, I told you guys sometimes. I'm like, oh, man, it's like somebody doing a Stallone, you know, which, I mean, at that point, I guess would have been his point of reference. Yeah, it's, he's definitely, he definitely sounds a lot like Stallone, uh, except Dolph is a little bit easier to understand. True. He, he enunciates words. So, um, because again, we should remind people, this man has a chemical engineering background. He's a genius, actually. He's just not an actor, uh, but he is a hulking presence. And so like, I, again, not knowing the comics and I'm going to rely on your knowledge here. Like, I think uh, when you say the words Punisher, I think of something intimidating, which is why the Thomas Chain movie never really worked for me. Cause I'm like, that dude's <laughs> not intimidating anybody. So whatever, like you might intimidate your barista at the Starbucks, but that's it. Like, Dolph Lundgren is an intimidating dude. He's big. He's hulking. He's got that. I mean, his face looks like a skull, right? The way they've got the eyeshadow and the sort of the, I haven't slept in 22 days and I live in the sewer look going. He's a big looking dude. So is the Punisher from the comic books like a big hulking guy? Yeah, he's he's a pretty big dude. Uh, like he definitely towers over like Wolverine and Spider-Man and dudes like that. He, he as a he is also uh, Frank Castle is also in the books or in the, the comic books, a Vietnam era special forces uh, operator, like the long range recon type where you could just drop it behind the enemy lines in the jungle and he would survive eating rats. So Rambo, in other words. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's basically like a Rambo type. Yeah. Okay. So is that, that I get, I mean, I knew like it, the, I knew the basics of the comic book origin was that he was a Vietnam vet. Here he's turned into a police officer. So fine, whatever. But the idea is just this presence of this guy. And like, if nothing more, they got a look that's like says Punisher. And what's neat about this movie is they drop us right in 
to a story that's going on and we have to catch up along the way. Like he's been going for five years as the Punisher, which is different because nowadays you feel like, you know, everybody has to have their origin story, right? Or it's part of somebody else's story to tell your origin story. And we get his origin story in a couple of sepia tone flashbacks. Yeah. Courtesy of, uh, Louis Gossett Jr. AKA what's his name? Jake Berkowitz. Yeah. Jake Berkowitz. What, what he, a name. He's the only black Berkowitz I think that's ever been in the movie. What Louis Gossett Jr. We're going to come back to him. <laughs> Academy Award winner Louis Gossett Jr. in a minute. But before we get get to him, the the whole idea that they the Punisher has been active for five years. He's you know killed all these mobsters and thugs or whatever. And the guy who was convicted of killing his wife and family gets off on a technicality. And the first 10 minutes of this movie are essentially just the Punisher going after that guy in his mansion and taking out all of his goons. And in most movies, that would be the climax. Yeah. Not yeah. this movie. No. This movie, that is your uh, amused bouche. Yeah, that is the cold open of this movie, is Dolph Lundgren shooting like a thousand people and uh, and never reloading one time. That's the beauty of 80s action films, and I miss it because we just... Like now, when you make those, it's a joke, like the Expendables or something like that. Or, or yeah, but he, it, but he doesn't, he doesn't reload because he drops down with a belt-fed machine gun. <laughs> well, th- no, I'm talking about the fact that like he doesn't even bother to reload. He shoots guns to their capacity, drops the gun, and just pulls another one out. Like oh, he's okay. he's just loaded with guns because he's got such a frame they could just strap all of them. That's the thing I took. Like he'll shoot a gun till it's you know it's got all of its rounds expended and then like that's gone. Here's another one. You know, it, it, rather than <laughs> bother to reload, we'll just pull out another gun. I mean, it's that that's a trope. Like that's amazing to see because you people joke about that in action movies, but then they actually see it in one and then they never acknowledge it. They play it off as serious. And that's what we should say. You and I are laughing a lot about this. This movie is stone cold serious. <laughs> like it is trying to be hardcore. But let's let's not just reduce the Punisher to a dude with a lot of guns. He also has a crossbow. He's got a noose. He's got like a grappling gun. He's, he's got, got all kinds he's got of, knives. Uh, of fun oh. gadgets. He's got those custom knives. Yeah, well, you know what? Like, there's a movie that came out years before this called Top Secret. I don't know if you've seen that one or not. It's kind of a oh, I love Top Secret. Yeah, great, great Zucker brothers film. Uh, the guys that made Airplane and, and Naked Gun, all stuff. And it's just kind of a spoof film. But there's a joke like these guys that they do this in the in that, but it's all played off as a laugh. Here though, it's played off as serious, and that's what makes this so cool. Like, go way back in the archives. You and me and Brian reviewed a little movie called Stone Cold. Uh, with Brian Bosworth, and I can't decide who's who's the most interesting actor, Bosworth or Dolph, and how we could not get those two things together. But anyway, the, like that movie had insane gun like porn in it, right? This movie is total gun porn, like almost. It, the only thing we don't really get to see him do is breaking them down and cleaning them. He just again because he doesn't load them, so he just, he just has them, shoots them, and then it's gone. The only time you see him load is in the climactic battle where he keeps. Uh taking out that magazine and putting it back in. Right. Yeah. The same mag, like <laughs> over and over again, probably because again, they, they spent $9 million on this, all the stories where they had run out of money long before they were done shooting it. So they were just running around trying to do anything they could to, to shoot the end of this. They went down to their local health spot and shot in the back, I think for the, for the climax <laughs> of this thing. But no, you, you have Punisher with all of his stuff, right? And that's the other thing too, is the opening of the movie before we get to the cold open mob murder, the opening credit sequence are like all these colored panes of him like shooting up things. And I'm thinking, Oh, they're doing that thing where like they, it's like a seventies thing. They're showing you scenes of the movie to come where he's doing this. And only later do you find out, no, that's just sort of to catch you up on what he's been doing the last five years. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty effective, uh, almost like a montage. Uh, opening credit montage, mm-hmm. yeah. It's uh, and I like the uh, it's. I, I think that it had such a, a big color scheme because it's kind of a nod to you know the comic book source material, right? Because the the Punisher's been in comic books since like 1974, mm-hmm. so he's gone undergone a lot of uh, different revisions, and sometimes his suit was blue, and sometimes it's black. Uh, you know, depending on how expensive ink ink is at a certain point in time. Yeah, and 
that's one of the things is he usually wears a t-shirt with like the screen print of the skull on it, right? That's a Punisher thing. But not in this movie. That's just Dolph's face. Yeah, for for some reason, they just chose not to use that skull logo, even though by this time, like I said uh, before, New World owned Marvel. So, like, Stan Lee was involved as a consultant on the film. Right, yeah. Can you imagine that for a minute? Like, Marvel Studios was owned by, like, you know, just this nothing outfit at one time. Like, now it's, you know, it's one of the biggest brands in the world, but not in 1989. It's strange to think that they had this property and they owned Marvel and could have made any of these movies, but they went with the Punisher, I guess, because you don't need special effects to have a guy shoot a bunch of people with guns. Well, I think they, you have special effects that you have 10 years of movie making to rely on to make look good. I get the idea of like, well, it seems like a strange thing to start with. But if you think of it from an effects point of view... They knew how to make explosions and gun violence look good because we'd done it for decades in cinema, right? Whereas, like, if you go watch like the Spider-Man TV show from the seventies, so you remember that? Like, there wasn't no way to make that look right, you know. And and even the the Superman movies, they really uh, the effects and those leave a lot to be desired. Uh, and so we'll just leave it at that. So I get why they would choose this one as a starting point because you know how to make the effects for it. Like, I, I totally understand that. I do think it's interesting that you pick a comic book film to start with, though, and you do go with something that is super violent, as this is. Because there's no easy way to, like, there's no softening up of this at all. It is murder from the get-go uh, with with this guy. Uh, and it is vigilante and, you know, Death Wish 5 gone awry, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely... Uh... It's definitely really hardcore, right down to even the a lot of the stuntmen. They didn't hire like traditional stuntmen. They hired like karate, like professional karate fighters. Right. So like uh, most of the Yakuza guys are actually karate fighters and they're doing like they're making contact. Because Dolph yeah. Lundgren, to prepare for the movie, mm-hmm. got back into the shape he was when he was a competitive martial artist and a and a. Uh, a karate champion. Yeah. Which so is, he, he walks into the set at 220 pounds of muscle. Yeah. Can you imagine, by the way, that guy at six, four doing, you know, six, five doing karate on you. That would be a, a punishing sight to see. Uh, Cause you know, most of those get, you think of like ninjas, like they're kind of slight, right? They're, they're Shokazugi and all that kind of stuff. Not six, five, you know, Hulk Hogan's friend. Basically, like that's not yeah. what you say. Because now you now you see it like you know, I watch wrestling, so you still see that these days. So I I can get it, but it's it's would be a thing to see a guy this size do that back then. We already name dropped him. We need to talk about Luke Gossett Jr. here as the maybe uh, African American Jewish detective Berkowitz. He's also kind of playing like uh, an extra from Shaft or something going on here. Like, what is Luke Gossett Jr. doing in this movie other than to? Have the one scene where he yells at Frank, like, open up to me. He is acting his ass off at every turn is what he's doing. He, I guess because the Punisher is such a character with no redeeming human qualities other than this thirst for vengeance that we need to have somebody who has has some reason to, to catch him and stop him. Because I get the feeling that these cops, aside from him, aren't looking too closely at Frank Castle or or the Punisher, aren't looking too much for Frank Castle because he's quote-unquote dead. And he gets – Louis Gossett Jr. Berkowitz gets a lot of pressure, especially early in the movie, to let it go, to drop it. Frank Castle's dead. This is just a gang war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the cops are willing to look the other way and let Frank Castle do his stuff, but Berkowitz – because he wants to find and save his friend, is refusing to get out of the way. Well, it's sort of this life debt business that he feels like he owes the dude, right? It's because he was kind of falling out of favor, was basically just relegated to a desk because he had had alcohol problems, and Castle got him back out on the streets and you know, rescued him and got him straight. And then of course, when everything went to hell for Frank Castle, you know, he couldn't be there for him. And he's just, he's always wanted to be there to repay for his friends. So I get that. I actually, I like it. It's, it's also another thing I've realized is that Christopher Nolan is a big fan of this movie, whether he ever admits it or not, 
because almost <laughs> the entire um, Gotham parts of the Dark Knight are totally from this movie. Um, like the fact that the cops aren't in a real interest to go and catch the vigilante because he's doing their job for them. And then when he, when they do, like he allows himself to get caught because it reels in the bad guy closer. You have a bad guy breaks out the you know, vigilante guy because it's more advantageous for him. Like all of that is it's just no one can be sued is what I'm trying to say, Rob. It's, it's interesting you bring up Batman because the uh, screenwriter for this, uh, a guy named Boaz Yakin or Yakin. I'm not sure. Uh, one of the things he has been attached to over the years was a movie called Batman Beyond, which ended up becoming Batman Year One, directed by Darren Aronofsky, which was also which was shut down and then ended up becoming Batman Begins when Christopher Nolan took it over. Oh, I was so not he aware. does have some ties, attempted ties to the Batman universe. Okay, that is interesting. I was not aware that it was that close together. So I, I didn't know they were that tied. But I mean, really, there's a lot of more modern films that crib from this one. And it's it's funny to think about because, again, this one is you know completely derided as just cheese, right? But it actually has some stuff going on in it that if you if it was made with a little bit more depth that people knew what they were doing, it, it would have maybe lasted a little longer or it would be a good homage. Now it's just, you know, you it's people like us that just sort of pick it apart and figure that out. So um, I do like the fact that we get a little throw into the Godfather here as well, because um, after uh, the Punisher has murdered so many of them at this point, the only thing to do is unite anymore, right? Like that's all we can do is just try to band together and survive. That was also another dark night moment, but I love Jerome Crab that plays the, the Franco guy here. I've seen him in so many different movies. He usually plays like a Russian heavy of some sort. Um, and I I thought he was just fantastic in this uh, and, a, and a lot of fun. And not who you would expect is uh, an action star, but he certainly gets some action chops in the film. Yeah, he's definitely a uh, he, he's definitely a familiar face. He's kind of a that guy. I thought for a while he was uh, Leo Rossi, but he's not. Uh, but I know him best from uh, probably from well, he's in The Living Daylights as the Russian general. Yes, exactly. Um, he's in Jumpin' Jack Flash, if you've seen that one. Oh, yes, the Whoopi Goldberg spy movie, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and he uh, he's Dutch, so uh, he's been in a, a, a lot of Dutch movies. I know he's worked with Paul Verhoeven a couple of times. So. Yeah. yeah. He's, again, he's one of those, you see the face, you know who he is. He's somebody that you would recognize if you if you bother to look at him, folks. But he's, he's a... I don't know. I, I liked him as a presence, though, and I like the fact that in a movie that is very cardboard, two dimensional, you know, everybody's just basically a, a paper target to be shot at. You have this guy who has a little bit more going on to him. Like he's legitimately worried about his son, which which makes what happens at the end of this, where he just heel turns all of a sudden, really strange and unsatisfying. Like I I don't know. We'll, we'll get to the ending when we get there. But I liked Kreb as as the the big heavy. Uh, in this, and the fact that he and the Punisher are going to do this whole "the enemy of my enemy is my friend" thing uh, before this is over with. Well, they, you know, Punisher uh, lost his children, and he doesn't want to see. He doesn't even want to see uh, gangsters go through that. Now he's willing to make those children orphans. But I guess letting the kids die is just a step too far, even for him. Right. It's like, no. It's like, I will take away all of your parents and your your means of uh, security, but I won't let somebody else take you out. And I think it's more over the fact that there's a bigger bad that comes in and moves in on the group. And that's what's fun about this and really plays into a major 80s and early 90s stereotype was that the Japanese were going to take over everything. Right. And so we had to bring their mob in. And I, you know, I've... I've heard of the Yakuza and lots of things. Honestly, the first thing that popped into my mind, and forgive me for this, was Fast and Furious 3 Tokyo Drift, because the Yakuza is <laughs> involved in that in some way, too. Uh, but that that's what I thought of. And then when Lady Tanaka showed up, I did have an Alien vs. Predator Requiem moment where it's uh, Miss Yutani at the end who gets a gun for some reason. <laughs> nice. It just made me think of all those uh, Enter the Ninja uh American Ninja movies that we watched. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Very American Ninja style. You're right. Um, well, you know, these could also have been the people from Revenge of the Ninja as well, from, from shows other movies. So, 
I see that. Or maybe Blind Fury, Rutger Hauer's play, right? It's all the same, you know, nameless or named but mysterious organization. And again, I think it's just playing up on that stereotype from the time that this was what we were all afraid of. And, oh, here they come back. And, uh, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's funny. I, I thought Kim Miori, though, as Lady Tanaka was pretty neat. Like her, her whole goon squad is cool. She's got this mute American child that she's adopted and turned to like Bruce Lee's evil daughter or something. <laughs> she has like earrings you can stab people with. And I don't know, man. Like there was some trippy stuff going on with the Yakuza group. Yeah, she's like the uh, the hand to hand punisher because like her shoes have knives in them. She's got hidden knives on her. She's got those uh, razor sharp earrings that she uses to stab people in the hands. She's got all kinds of weapons on her in addition to being like a martial arts master. Right, and I mean her and Dolph have a really good go at each other at the end of this. I mean it's probably one of the better fights of the whole thing. Is they those two go at each other for a good five minutes in a in a dojo at the end of this. Uh, and I think, I mean, you know, he gets stabbed a lot and survives. I mean, kind of like Jamie Lannister for some reason. Uh, he just gets stabbed a lot and it's okay. But, uh, but, you know, he does end up cracking her neck. But no, I like, I, I like the Yakuza thing. I'm going with this at this point. Um, what do you think of, uh, of Jake's uh, new partner here, the nondescript, uh, blonde cop, uh, who is dressed like she works at the, I don't know, five below or something like that with shoulder pads? Yeah, not the script is a great, uh, great description for her. Uh, she is like the low end, or like the homeless person's like uh, the partner from RoboCop. Lewis. Lewis. Yeah. She's, yeah. yeah, she's Lewis again. I, you know, the other thing I got off of her, she's sort of the poor person's uh, Helen Slater. Was I got off of that? Like a little, little, little uh, Legend of Billy Jean action going there. Oh, nice. Or, that's or, a good, that's a good pull. Or if you're into that. So, yeah. Um, Legend of Billie Jean, by the way, side note here, um, one of two movies I've never actually been able to stay awake entirely through. The other one is Remo Williams' Your Adventure Begins. And I like both of them, but I've never been able to make it through either one of them awake. Like, I, But I don't miss anything. Like, I sleep through the second act and wake up and feel like I've still got it, so... Uh, there you go. 80s, 80s movies. Don't you miss them? Uh, but no, so we have not Helen Slater teaming up with Jake here because we like 80s cop movies, right? You've always got to have the old grizzled partner with the new partner that now believes in the mission. And this was on the heels of Lethal Weapon, but I can't imagine that it was influenced by it. Yeah, I, I don't see any uh, Lethal Weapon influence. I think this movie was in production before uh, the lethal weapon formula had been leaked to the world and they don't really seem to try to establish them as, as friends. Well, we should say she does completely drop out of this movie at some point. Like she, and she shows up at the end, like what the hell happened? And I'm like, who are you? Oh yeah. I mean, she just goes away at some point because I don't know. We've ran out of stuff for her to do. Yeah. I mean, do you really miss her? No, not, not at all. But, they pair her up with Gossett Jr. so much that you wonder where it happened to your friend. So at some point, but yeah, she doesn't really you know add anything to the mix here, and that's unfortunate too because I can actually see this character. This character should be the audience, right? Like this is the person that we're catching up on everything, but mm-hmm. no one gets to play that role here. Jake kind of does, but he's seen it all, so he can't really be the audience. And I, I don't know, like that, that was a missed opportunity in my opinion, because otherwise she just has no point at all. And it's just there. And she's not there for like any other, like she doesn't fall in love with the Punisher. She doesn't have any of that. Again, they play her like an almost complete blank. So it's, that's why I just question like, who, who are you? What are you here for? Uh, because Jake doesn't need her. Well, she does know how to use a computer. Oh, I forgot the technology. Yeah, she's the one that figures out well, if we just pinpoint all the places and then she figures out that, oh, there are sewers in this city. So maybe that's where he's hiding. Like that was her, I guess that is her big role and revelation for the film is that she figures out maybe we should look in the sewers. Just like yeah, the, the alligator movie. Yeah, the sewers in New York are just lousy with Punishers and Chuds. Everybody knows this. Well, well look, you and I reviewed uh, Jason Takes Manhattan. We know. So, I mean, that, that's, that's clearly what was going on. And that was about the same time here. So, sure. Um, and, you know, if they'd have just gone a few blocks up, uh, they, they would have bumped into him. It's never said where this is. I, I did get, like, New York vibe off of it. But it could also be California, I guess. I mean, there's 
I didn't catch if they ever said. Do they ever say where it is? Uh, they don't, but there uh, is a prominent set piece that takes place in Coney Island. Okay, so see, the, then it is supposed to be New York, New Jersey. At least that, at yeah. least this part of the movie's in New York. I don't, I'm not sure where the rest of it is being shot, but <laughs> this is true. Well, it was probably one of those. Everybody jump out of the van. We're going to shoot this real quick before the cops show up. So, the real cops, that is, because I, I can imagine there was a lot of permitless filming with this film. Yeah, and I, I could definitely see that. But it's funny because uh, the last time I went to New York, I made a, I made it a point to go to Coney Island even though it was the off-season, because I wanted to look around and see all the stuff from the Warriors. But um, it's funny, because he rode his motorcycle down some of the very streets that I, I, like some of the very boardwalk that I had taken wandering around a mostly closed amusement park. Yeah, can we talk about the, the fact that this guy rides a motorcycle everywhere he goes through the sewers? And these sewers are pristine and dry. I mean, I thought the point of the sewer was that it wasn't dry. Like that's where all of the that goes, right? Like very, I don't know. It, was, it, I, it took me aback to like how often he's riding that motorcycle through things. And I wanted to ask, like, does the Punisher ride a motorcycle, or is that a Dolph Lundgren thing? Like, oh, I want to do this, but I got to ride my hog. Uh, he has had a motorcycle in the past. He is. He's kind of. It, it all kind of depends on who's drawing him. Oh, okay. and who, who the riders are and what they want him to do. Sometimes he's got uh, a motorcycle. Sometimes he's got like a van full of uh, high tech goodies. It, it just it kind of depends wildly. But I'm pretty sure Dolph is like, I'd like to drive my motorcycle in the movie. Yes, often. So, well, can you bring it yourself and gas it up? Sure. You know, I'm, I can see how that conversation went. It's like we don't have any money for this, like at all. Because the money's all uh, your salary and squibs. And then what we had to pay Lou Gossett to go and do this. Uh, which I guess at that point he wasn't really discerning. It was this in, in between like Iron Eagle sequels at this point for him. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> which I like the first one. I'm, and I'm not going to lie and say I haven't seen all of the other ones. But, you know, again, not a discerning actor. So, But it's different, you know, for his generation of folks. But this is also the man that did Jaws 3D so on the heels of uh, winning an Oscar. So. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Well, that's, that's the same as Halle Berry doing Catwoman on the heels of winning one, too. So, yeah. You win the Oscar, and then you go for the Razzie. So I, I guess this <laughs> is like some sort of Scientologist trifecta or something. I don't know. Um, so not that I don't even just lose Scientology. I don't know. who. Whatever. Hollywood. Um, so back, back to the movie at hand, though. I do like the idea of the children being held hostage as a ploy, though, because that's usually like the last straw, right? Like we, we talked about the fact that like he'll orphan all these kids, but he's not going to allow them to be held hostage or pawns in the game. And, you know, I, I go back again to 1989 and what was going on in the world and where we were as a country and children being held hostage or being taken away and all that was in the news all the time. We were talking about it. Geraldo had shows on it, right? Like it was just part of the pop culture lexicon. So messing with the kids seems like a decent enough plot point. And they were being sold to uh, a slavery ring. So let's not forget white slavery was also involved. Another hot 80s thing. Like the only thing they didn't have was like satanic panic as part of like the Yakuza could have been like doing some Charles dance, golden child's type stuff in the back. And then we would have, we would have had all of it. Right. Yeah. I was going to say the the white slavery people should have been playing D and D. Oh yes. That would have been perfect. Listening to Judas priest and you know, yeah. Can we talk about the music in this movie or the complete lack of music in this movie <laughs> that there isn't any, I guess that's just a money problem. Right. But there is, like, the soundtrack is, like, old synthesizer tracks 1 through 12. Like, there's <laughs> nothing cool. Like, at least the, you know, the American Ninja movies had soundtracks, right? Invasion USA kind of had a soundtrack. Because Golden Globus would spend money on, you know, music. They'd recycle it for 12 movies. But you'd at least have music. The music in this sucked. Yeah, music was definitely not a, uh, seems like it was an afterthought. But it's funny, this movie was actually the, uh, during the making of this movie, between the time it debuted in, in Germany in 1989 and when it came out in video in the U.S., uh, the company had basically folded and was bought by a different company who decided that they didn't want to do theatrical releases anymore. <laughs> so I'm thinking maybe like they got a rough cut of this movie, pushed it out, 
to fulfill their uh, international theatrical obligations, hadn't sold it in America yet, then just decided not to bother like putting in a soundtrack. I guess so, or just kept the temp or whatever they had going on, because there is nothing interesting about this. And that's the one thing I think you would want to have. And I don't, I don't remember the Thomas Jane movie having like a memorable soundtrack necessarily, but I think there was something there, right? Like they at least try to do something. Uh, and I imagine there, you know, the I didn't see the sequel, but you can tell me like there's got to be that's the era of new metal, right? There would there would have been plenty of that on that show. Yes, there was definitely uh, a lot of uh, generic saliva. Or <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that and then there was bad music. Uh, so uh, yeah, there's I can see that working out. But the children being hostage is the last straw. But what what I find interesting again is this movie opens up with what would be the climax, then Act Two ends with what could also be the climax of something. And I wonder if one of the original intentions wasn't to make this like a serialized television show or something like that, because you could see like this would almost be like three or four episodes strung together. I don't. Uh, that's not anything I'm familiar with. But that that doesn't mean they couldn't have also done it. That was a common thing back in the eighties. Except usually you would see right. a, a failed TV series edited down into a movie, like Master Ninja, right? Something like that. Well, honestly, like I was looking at this, going like, you know, if you take out the language and some of the over the top violence, this could just be like a two night special of Hunter, you know, or something <laughs> like that. I mean, really, it could, right? It's the same kind of stuff that. Uh, Fred, uh, what's his name, got involved in. I can't remember his name now. But yeah, it's the same kind of thing Hunter got involved in. So I, I could see that. The, I gotta say, the, the, uh, the cool thing about the Punisher here, and we haven't even talked about his main sidekick. Can we talk about Shakes? That he has this drunk, uh, Shakespearean style thespian who's also got his ear to the ground on the underground crime scene in the city? Yeah. Shakes is a great character. And, the Punisher actually has a pretty good uh, – in the comic book has a pretty good selection of uh, – his side character is usually pretty good. They kind of have to be to make up for – you know, Frank Castle is a fairly one-note character even in yeah. the hands of like a Garth Ennis or somebody. So you get characters like Shake or uh, Microchip or Soap. And it's uh, – yeah, he's great. He's like a, a poor man's – like a homeless man's John Hurt. Yeah, he could be a homeless John Hurt. You're right. That's a good call for this guy. I honestly thought he was going to die. When they put him on the, the stretch track and stuff, mm-hmm. I thought, well, okay, this is time to kill your friends so you have more motivation. right? But he lives. Like, I'm like, oh, what, in what movie world are we in where this guy gets to live? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because I it's been so long since I've seen it. I assumed he died too. But uh, no, he, he gets stretched out a little bit and he's made a little – a few inches taller, but uh, at the end of the day, he is there to help the Punisher uh, undertake his big attack on the, uh, uh, what did you call it, a day spa? Yeah, it, it looks like the back room of the day spa where the Yakuza are hanging out. Um, so, well, I mean, again, I, I chalk all that up to we were out of money and didn't have everything else to do. So let's get some red lights and, and some of that paper uh, balsa wood uh, screening that's in between where you get acupuncture and you know, uh, eyebrow <laughs> waxing and we'll just go with it. So, I mean, because really, that's what it looks like to me. Not that I've visited those places often, but I've seen them. Um, so when we used to have one at the university I worked at, so I, you know, I know what they look like. This was just immediately what I thought of was the, the little spot at uh, Auburn University, which is no longer there, by the way. But anyway, uh, yeah, before we get to that, though, we got to talk about the big shootout. Well, one of the big shootouts, the, the big one where he goes and rescues most of the kids. But the fact that the kids have been like fighting each other, too, like my dad could kill more people than your dad. I'm like, this is mobster fantasy, right, is what the children would argue about. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably one of the funnier uh the, probably one of the funniest scenes in the movie is when the little uh, the kidnapped children start start physically fighting each other because of the rivalries between their fathers. It's like, "Oh yeah, these are uh these these guys didn't actually successfully join together for that 600 million dollars of heroin or whatever." Yeah, yeah, the 
the we should say they all get taken out when a big heroin bust, which also feels like the usual suspects. So hey, Christopher McQuarrie, you watch this movie too. Uh, goes down, and that's when the Yakuza comes in. But the kids have been fighting, and that's what leads one of them to be off from the other ones because he like punched out a couple of kids. So Johnny Franco. Uh, Franco's kid is separated from the rest of them, and the little girl's like, "You gotta go get Johnny." And so that's when you know Dolph is Dolph Elvis Punisher is off to go into that at the end, and he's unsuccessful. Like again, this is our act two turn is it doesn't work out, and at the end of this, he turns himself in. He allows himself to get arrested. And my question to you was: Was he just going like, "Yeah, I got most of the kids back," you know, and now he was just done at that point? No, I I think he didn't want to shoot any cops. Yeah, they catch him. They catch him on that bus, and he's literally yeah. like, "There's nowhere else you can go. You can't like. There's no door on the other side of the bus you can jump out of." So I think he's kind of he knows he's just drove. He saved the kids, most of the kids, and he's known he's driven himself into uh, a trap. Right, because so he he does get stopped by the the all points bulletin. At the highway. And that's when, you know, Lou Gossett Jr. gets his big traumatic moment with him in the cell. And, you know, Lou, Lou's always fun in a movie when he starts yelling at somebody because <laughs> he, he, his tongue like swells up and he starts spitting his words through his tongue. It's, it's a weird acting thing. I mean, it's, it doesn't, in every movie he doesn't, Officer and Gentleman, he doesn't Iron Eagle. He probably does it in Iron Eagle too. I mean, he does, he does it in all these movies, and he does it in this one when he's like, "Let me in, Frank. Let me in." You know, he's just he's losing his mind. And I was sitting there going, like, this poor man is trying desperately to have a performance <laughs> where he is getting nothing back on the other side. Well, uh, although to be fair to Dolph Lundgren, there's not the the Punisher isn't exactly a character who's going to emote back at you. Yeah, I mean, he's, all, he's not supposed to, but he's also like not reacting at all. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> like, there's not emoting and being cold, and then there is not even being aware that another person is there. Like nowadays, we chalk that up to like these people weren't on the same set; it was all green screen. This was again shot in like the back side of uh, the old Mayberry set that they got a hold of, or something like that. <laughs> so, I mean, th- th- these people were in front of each other. Lou was spitting on him. Which, which if you if you watch closely, you actually can see like spit fly out of Lou's mouth onto him yes. during that scene, which is hilarious. I, I uh, credit to Dolph; he he maintains the fact that he is not going to react to anything this man does. He can throw a cigarette at him and he'd be okay. Yeah, and and that's it. Startled me when uh, Louis Gossett Jr. just first turned on him and started screaming at him. I jumped like, and it's I wasn't even there like in the privacy of my own house, like uh, watching the movie on my phone, I like startled. (laughs) Well, it's because it comes out of nowhere. Like it's not like he walks in and sort of warms up and then starts screaming at him. He walks in the jail and he starts losing his mind on his friend that he hasn't seen in years that he knows what he's been doing. And I guess that's what you would do, right? It's like, what the hell are you doing? I mean, he just loses it on this dude. And, Again, it's, it's humorous because this movie, like this movie, had started to slow down a little bit at that point for me. I'm like, okay, so how is he going to get out of jail? Is he going to, you know, is he got up? His shake's going to throw him a grenade. So what, what's going to be the deal? And but we had to get this moment for Lou to be able to, I guess, you know, bring the emotional resonance back into this uh, for whatever reason. And as as like an emotional center for the movie, I got to say he's good. Louis Gossett Jr. is great in this movie. Like he is working hard. He is, he is. Every time he gets something to say, he is, he is like chewing, chewing it like a pack of bubble gum. It's, it's great. Yeah, yeah he is going through this like Levi Garrett at a Leonard Skinner concert or something, man. I mean, he is eating it up. And what I do like here though is when they're they're transporting him away, and I'm going like, who's going to break him out? You know, because I didn't, I didn't know the plot. I didn't know how it was going to go. And when you see all the Franco goons who are left uh, come in and shoot the cop car up and all this stuff, and they break the Punisher out, I'm like, well, here we go. This is the, the we now have to all the, the heels team up to go against the super heel uh, because this is how <laughs> we have to do in, in the '80s. This is what we we're going to do. And I was just waiting for the turn to come. But I, what did you make of the the whole? 
rundown where him and Franco go in together to do the shootout. I thought that was a, a fun take on the usual, uh, for lack of a better term, chicken shit heel you normally see in these kind of movies. Like it was nice to see that that Franco is is not just a suit with some great hair that never moves. Oh man, that stuff was locked in place, wasn't it? That was amazing. Yes. Crab's hair is unreal. I do like the fact though, that they feel like they need leverage on this guy, so they've also kidnapped a cop. You're like, if you're trying to lay low as the as the mob, you know, maybe you shouldn't kidnap the police. I'm, even even the <laughs> disgraced police, they're probably going to come looking for it. Especially now that he's been proven to be right. That's the other thing. Yeah, yeah, that might be a that that might be a bad idea. I don't think she necessarily thought this plan through. Uh, to yeah. make enemies of all five families plus the cops. Yeah, it's a, it's a bad move, Yakuza. Like you got to rethink your whole strategy here. But even beyond that, though, uh, well, I do like how Jake gets out of it, though, right? Like he he finds some way. I think he has some line about do you, do you even know how dumb you are or something like that. And the guy's like, no. And I'm like, well, I'm glad you asked because <laughs> I was wondering. But the best part is at the end of all of that when he picks up the piece of pizza that the guy drops after he cold cocks it. I was like, well, that's perfect. I can't help but feel like that was an ad lib from Louis Gossett Jr. Got it. I mean, it, pro- it probably wasn't because they bought a they, they brought a pizza to set and it wasn't just an empty box. Right. But <laughs> I, I could see him going over to craft services and being like, hey, let me get a slice of that. I got an idea. Right. And it's, it's, it's probably the funniest, like the funniest thing in the movie for me because I laughed out loud just at his like quizzical his his expression when he picks that piece of piece of pizza up and puts it in his mouth and just walks out holding it in his mouth just yeah. just cracked me up well un- it's unreasonably it's true to his character he's just the good labrador you know so it's exactly this <laughs> our good saint bernard that's just kind of what he is at that point uh, in the in the movie so i i got it i i dug it i liked how he outsmarted him i kind of wanted jake to be in on the last fight though because after that he just goes and stands outside and waits for the carnage like I kind of wanted him to join up and you know maybe he get a shot to knock our crab or whatever. We already talked. You know, Dolph takes out the uh, you know mute white girl um, ninja, and then he and and crab finally get to Lady Tanaka, and Tanaka is basically about ready to shoot the sun or or cut the sun's head off or something. And Dolph Lundgren crashes through the uh, you know the set there or the dividers between the massage parlors and throws a knife in her as he falls down. I, I thought that was pretty good. That was a good shot. And uh, he threw a knife through someone's skull, though. So this man's, like, he has the physics of, like, commando to be able to pull that off. <laughs> we just need some uh, steel drums in the background. Where was that and David Patrick Kelly? If you'd have had that, this has been gold. So I mean, they, they probably couldn't afford it, but uh, that would have been awesome. So no, that was a that was a fun like uh, out of nowhere uh, thing. I mean, you expect them to show up in like shooter or something, right? Or right. shooter in the back, or to have some kind of big heroic moment from the Punisher, but like to leap through the paper wall. And just hurl a dagger while flying through the air is just so ludicrous to perfectly fit in with the rest of this ridiculous movie. Exactly. And, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I would have loved it if Jake had gotten involved in this. And now that Tanaka's dead, of course, the bad guy can't let it go. He's like, thanks for saving my son. Now I'm going to shoot you. And the thing that gets me, though, and I've got to ask you, how does he die? Because they set up this whole bit about how... He's wearing body armor, and the Punisher refuses to, yet he gets shot in the struggle for the gun. So, Oh, he shoots him in the ribs. Oh, uh, okay. See, I didn't catch that. Well, they're, they're struggling for the gun, and it's twisting around. He shoots him in the side. Oh, where there is no uh, uh, armor. Okay, I get it now. Okay, I, I wondered about that, because I, I really had problems with that. I was like, wait a minute, you're the one wearing the armor. Like, that should have worked out better. But it's, again, why I wish Jake had walked in in the middle of that struggle. You hear the gunshot, and you realize Dolph didn't shoot anybody. Crab didn't shoot anybody. Louis Gossett Jr. standing over there going, like, yeah, gotcha, sucker. You know, or something. Like <laughs> while, while still eating the pizza. Like, that would have been great. And then he escorts the kid out. But we had to have the moment, too, where the, the kid holds the gun on the Punisher. And he's like, yeah, it's like reverse Santa Claus or something. Like, go and be a bad guy, and I'll be right there. 
which I got a little shade off of Silent Night, Deadly Night with that. I don't know if you did, but I, I felt a little, a little uh, Billy there. Uh, with, yeah, with that was that definitely. It definitely had a, had some Billy overtones to it. All you need to do is just say naughty, and then we would have been fine. So, but we didn't even cut to a cool song. Like that's that's the sad part of this movie is it didn't have anything like you know you watch the end of Cobra and there's that jamming John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown song. You know, uh, you don't have anything cool to cut to because it's it's over and that's it. Like the movie is like so over. Like they're like and we're done. Goodbye. You know, and that is it. It is done. I'm like, wow, that was an abrupt ending to all of this. And, and again, to only end up in the naked sewer, because that's a good idea. <laughs> but so. you've mentioned, you've mentioned throughout the movie, uh, you know, Christopher Nolan must have watched this. So and so must have watched this. You know who watched this final climactic sequence? Who? Quentin Tarantino. Oh, wow. Because there's the same moment between <laughs> the bride and uh, Vivica A. Fox's daughter after yes. she kills her in the kitchen at her house. And she goes on the whole thing about, you know, mm-hmm. it's okay. When you're old enough, you can come after me, et cetera, et cetera. You're right. I had not thought of that, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> that is uh, wow. I had uh, I didn't think we were going there today, but uh, you're right. Uh, the fact that Tarantino's seen this and ripped it off, new no shock. <laughs> whatsoever like he probably that. has this on betamax dude yeah he probably owns like a pristine no he owns a print of this dude and plays it regularly at his house i'm, I'm certain so yeah <laughs> this is right up his wheelhouse and uh you know it would have been funny if they had somebody like him at least write the punchy dialogue because uh, at least we would have had some because we didn't have any in this and i don't know that i don't know if dolph could have delivered it or not but they certainly didn't trust him with it you can tell like, and not that I needed the Punisher to go on soliloquies or anything, because there is a character to actually do that, but it would have been something to have a little more than what we got. But, you know, hey. Yeah, it's like a it's like an Arnold movie without the quips at the end. Yeah, imagine, like, if you were to watch a movie like Commando or Raw Deal or something like that, and you take out all of the Arnold one-liners. Yeah, com- <laughs> Commando without the... I lied. Yeah, or any of it, right? Like I'm yeah. going to kill you last, you know, or what, or whatever. Yeah. So, Bennett, take it, you know, blow off some steam. So I, I could quote Commando all day uh, because it is a far superior movie to this, and it was made years before, and it wasn't based on anything. So, um, Radon Chong also more useful than the blonde cop that we don't even know her name. It's funny that you mentioned the dialogue because one of the uh, one of the and you mentioned uh, Lethal Weapon. Well, uh, the movie was rewritten by one of the producers uh, to add a lethal weapon type prologue, which they filmed, but cut out. Oh, wow. What what would and, that have been? Would that have been the the actual car bombing that we saw like pieces of or something else? They, they had that part in there and then they had uh, uh, there was some other like kind of uh, stuff at the end. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, kind of thing. But it's funny uh one of the uh I mentioned the the Betamax, but the uh a bunch of that lost footage was found because the director, uh Mark Goldblatt, I believe. Yeah. Gold something. Yeah. Yeah, Mark Goldblatt, he kept the original beta master. So they found that Betamax tape and put it back in on the special edition. Oh wow. The, okay. Two things I didn't know that there was a special edition of this. At all. Oh yeah! Like wow! It's apparently it's apparently uh, it was apparently very popular in Europe. It's quite it must be quite a collector's item. So I can I can only imagine that it would have hit. Well, obviously it lasted because we're still talking about it thirty years later. If you know nothing more than all the things that it probably influenced and borrowed from. Because that's the thing you can say about this movie is it's definitely not something that was forgotten to the sands of time. I mean, and uh, but clearly no one owns it anymore because, like I said, I watched it on YouTube. So it, yeah. it was not like rental on YouTube. It was just there. So, uh, and no one seems to be in a real rush to uh, grab those rights up. Yeah. Uh, and I, I could understand why, but after they made the movie, it apparently did well enough in Europe that they were talking about doing a sequel. Oh, wow. And then it got caught up in light in uh, rights limbo. Sure. But uh, it's funny. Cause you mentioned Dolph Lundgren delivering the Punisher's monologues. Yeah. But he actually like, worked with the producer and rewrote all the monologues to be more comfortable saying them. I don't necessarily think he had the best grasp or the most confidence in his ability to speak English at this time. Must not have. 
at, at this point. Well, there's a, the famous story that Stallone dropped by the set of this and was watching it and said to whoever was making it, like, you let this guy talk? So, which if Stallone's <laughs> saying that to you, there's there are problems. So, um, that, that go beyond the tell. But, yeah, I, I, I can believe it, man. I can totally buy that uh, people in Europe would go for something like this. It, it has a bit of that flourish to it, and mostly works on that level. So I guess we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, Ron, where does the Punisher lie for you? Well, I have to say that even after watching it as an adult, I really like it. Uh, I really had a good time watching it. It does slow down in the middle. Uh Unfortunately, but um, you know it's the the late '80s. They they wouldn't they wouldn't discover the ability to go full on bananas crazy throughout an entire movie until you know later on in the decade. But I have to admit, uh, Dolph Lundgren's monotone uh, take on the Punisher kind of works for me. I like that he's dead behind the eyes. Uh, apparently, he Dolph Lundgren went without sleep during the filming of the movie to look exhausted. Um, and they painted that beard on his face to make him look like the skull, the Punisher skull, because they weren't using the Punisher skull motif in his shirt or his coat or whatever. So that, I thought that was a pretty cool nod. Um, and I admire the commitment to Dolph Lundgren basically doing all of his own stunts and, and all of his own fighting in the movie. Uh, so I'm going to go with a medium popcorn. It's, not great, but it's pretty good, and I think it's worth watching uh, and maybe worth checking in on every few years when you need a good dose of uh, 80s cheese, but you don't want to go full-on commando with it. Want something a little bit more serious? Want to watch uh, Lou Gossett Jr. Uh, chew on the scenery? You want to watch uh, a, an unnecessary uh, female detective disappear halfway through the flick? Uh, I, I have to say, I really liked it. You know, I had a good time with this too. I'm going to give it a small popcorn, but I don't mean that in the sense that it's bad. It's just that it is really cheesy, but sometimes you just want some cheese and this could be a good small bag that, you know, wasn't completely and totally fried by your microwave because you put it in for too long. Like th- there's parts of this that really slow down, but if you just watch it, just go in with a complete blank slate. I watched it in one sitting and I found myself quite entertained and laughing throughout a good bit of it, even when it's you know laughing at its badness, but also kind of getting into some of what it's about. Cause it is a neat little plot. Like it's executed really badly, but it's an incredible idea and it's so much better than the Thomas Jane. Like that is not even close. I haven't seen the other one someday. I'll, I'll watch the race Ray Winstone one, but that, that uh, Thomas Jane one is just dreadful. This one's at least fun. So, um, and it doesn't take itself, too seriously like it kind of does but that's what Lou Gossett's there for is to remind you that like look y'all we know this is cheesy so have some <laughs> fun with it right and and that that's what this movie is it is it's more fun than you know in our little trifecta here it's not as serious as The Crow it's also not as well made it, but it's in the same vein as Dark Man but it's much more fun to watch Dark Man is a slog to get through uh, this one not so much for me so I'm going to give it a small popcorn but that's a that's a thumbs up small popcorn definitely worth checking out and, uh, you know, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's definitely worth doing, especially if you're a fan of the comics or a fan of the more modern iterations. It's cool to see where it came from and, you know, laugh at, at a time that has long gone us in cinema history. But the, the action 80s are a lot of fun. Ron, tell folks where they can find your writing and the other stuff that you're doing over at Den of Geek. Well, like uh, like Chase said, you can find me at Den of Geek. I'm doing the... Uh, final season of Game of Thrones, which is a lot of sleepless nights for me. I just got done with American Gods. I will be starting uh, – I will possibly be doing some fun stuff uh, for Deadwood. I'm not 100% sure yet when the Deadwood movie comes out. And, uh, yeah, you, you can find me there uh, talking a lot about TV. I think it's neat that you're doing Game of Thrones. And, gosh, I just wish they'd give you something to write about this last season. Sheesh. You know. Yeah, no, nothing happened. <laughs> I know it's just a bunch of sitting around talking. So, uh, but no, <laughs> definitely, folks, check out check out Ron's uh, work with uh, with Denim Geek and and the writing that he's doing. Always good stuff, Ron. Glad to have you again here on Film Strip, and look forward to you coming back uh, at another time because we've got some fun things planned for the summer. We're not going to reveal just yet, folks. Again, thanks for joining us on the show. 
subscribe to Filmstrip Podcast on anywhere you find your, your podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, all that stuff. We are there, Pocket Cast. You can find us. You can also go to our website, filmstrippodcast.com. Find links to all the shows there if you want to download them directly, put them on another device, listen to them through the web. We appreciate the support. Because we have relaunched the show on a new feed, we do need new reviews. So wherever you get the podcast, please give us a positive review. It'll help boost the signal a little bit. We appreciate the support. Ron, how can folks find you on the Twitters? I am at Hollywood Ron on Twitter. And I am at Jay Skipworth. And of course, you can follow the show at Filmstrip Pod. We'd appreciate it if you would do all of those things. Again, thanks for joining us on this. And for Ron, I'm Jay. You've been listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.